Join us for the Criterion Institute podcast as Joy Anderson, a global thought leader in business and social change, leads us through a series of discussions, interviews, frameworks, rants, and reframes that will help you better understand how to use finance as a tool for transformative systems change. Hello, I'm Joy Anderson, and this is the Criterion Institute podcast. In this episode, we explore imagining alternative futures and thinking through the contingencies in those futures. Be three segments. The first one broadly introduces the importance of imagining alternative futures for gender as investors. As investors, we constantly are imagining what might happen in the future, what might change. But around issues of gender and rather around issues of social structures in general, most investors assume that constructions of gender in context, gender norms are static. That is not true. They change. Gender has a future. In the second segment, I tell a classic story that I tell pretty often about a moment where I was giving a speech and a nice man decided to call me Pollyanna because I was imagining a future without gender-based violence. Classic story. The final segment is a conversation with my father, Herbert Anderson. He's a theologian, and in this series that we recorded together, I was able to explore how much I've learned from him. This conversation builds on the theme of alternative futures by digging into why we resist planning for contingencies. As a final note, we're going to build on this focus on the future in the next episode of the podcast and a conversation that I had two years ago with leaders in the field of sustainable investment around why the future matters in finance. Enjoy. Investors only make money in the future. This is a truism. Nobody, maybe day traders, makes money in the moment to moment. You make money because you invest and then a set of things happen. And then as a result of that set of things happen, your investments grow. And then when you repaid your capital or you exit the investment, then that's when you make money or you buy a stock. And when you sell the stock is when you make money. Investors make money in the future. One of the challenges in the field of gender lens investing, I think is actually critical for us to address, is that we need a future. We need a future that people can make a bet on. When you talk about the current realities, when you talk about what's happening right now, you're in a world of what investor would call chronic risk, right? If I really want to talk about the problems in the world today, if I want to talk about the challenges that are created in the world, in our economies, in our lives, in our societies by this sort of deep structural inequities that exist around gender and race and colonialism and all these pieces, if I want to talk about that for real, it's chronic risk. It's what everybody's swimming in. And so part of the challenge is if everybody's swimming in the same chronic risk, I don't know how to make a bet to say, 
right, if I see these fundamental structural inequities in the world, what am I betting on? What might happen in the future that means if I don't see these chronic risks and the challenges that they're creating, then I'll miss an opportunity or I'll miss a risk that could tank my investments in the future. So one of the classic stories here is Me Too. The Me Too movement was a long time coming. It was grounded in organizing efforts over years and years and years. It didn't spin out of the blue that year and suddenly get an article in a series of newspapers that revealed what was going on. There also weren't any structural changes in companies that revealed this happening. There wasn't a crisis in a company that revealed this. It was actually activism within social movements that unveiled not a change in behavior in companies. Many of the things that were called out in Me Too had happened 10, 15 years ago. It wasn't a new activity. What changed was the tolerance of that activity. What changed was the norm around that activity. And so, of course, what you saw, anytime norms start to change, you then saw an immediate backlash afterwards. The interesting piece here, the takeaway about the future, is we need to be telling stories of the future. Nobody, investors, I don't want to say nobody, but largely nobody saw Me Too coming. Nobody was tracking changes in gender norms tied to violence against women and saying, hey, you know what? If there comes a day when people no longer tolerate systemic abuse within these industries in the workplace, then all of a sudden these risks that existed actually on people's books, right? These were settled lawsuits. These were deferred settlements, deferred dealing with this issue. These were risks built up. Every company has a history of exploitation that could be revealed. That is a risk on everybody's, oh wait, not on anybody's books because we're not paying attention to it because we don't see a future where the values, where the norms where the tolerance of inequities might change. So we need to create futures. We need to tell stories of scenarios about what is possible. Not just of, you know, economic participation or what might happen if more women worked harder and I know all those kinds of things. But what if the care economy changed? Fundamentally, we are in the middle of a restructuring where the care economy will not be the same in five years. And we as investors need to have a story of that future and figure out what bets we're making in our investments today that will either avoid the risks in that future or capture the upside. Because investing is about the future. And for us to be able to craft an investment thesis that values that future, we need to have those stories. Because here's the really cool thing. Once we start making bets on those futures, let's say we made a bet on a future where violence against women and gender minorities and other racial violence, any violence, was not tolerated. Not tolerated is too far, substantially less tolerated. In that future, there are going to be a bunch of companies that lose. 
that have to restructure their businesses. They have to change their policies. They have to, oh, I don't know, maybe get rid of a few CEOs who are perpetuating this culture. They need to change their culture. And that is expensive. That is a material risk for investors. And so there are social movements around the world that are addressing these inequalities that are seeking to change gender norms. And investors need to work on an investment thesis, a story of the future. They need to do the analysis that says what in their portfolio would be exposed to the risks of equality. If we made advancements, if the cultural norms, the social norms changed in such a way that we had less bias, less discrimination, less inequity within our world, there is a story of a future where that is possible. It is possible that the arc of our future, as Martin Luther King says, tilts towards justice. It is possible that that is true. And we need to tell the story of who is going to be successful there and who is going to fail because that future is possible. So a couple years ago, I was in Singapore giving a speech. It was the AVPN, the Asian Venture Philanthropy Network Conference, an amazing conference. And they had set up a room where I was speaking about gender-based violence as sort of Criterion was just really starting to take on this topic as a way to show additional ways that you could look at achieving gender equality by using finance. And so it was a very nice crowd full of investors. And I was talking things through. And at, and at some point I said, what if we imagined a world without gender-based violence? How would you invest as if you believed that there could be, if not an end, a substantial reduction in gender-based violence? How would you invest? And uh, this very nice man raised his hand and said, Dr. Anderson, don't you think that's just a little Pollyanna imagining a world without gender-based violence? Something snapped at me. And I was like, are you serious? Elon Musk gets to say that we're going to live on Mars and he can attract billions of dollars of investment. And I suggest that we're not going to beat the crap out of women and gender minorities. And I'm Pollyanna. I've invited my dad, Herbert Anderson, an influential theologian, to reflect with me on some big ideas that have shaped my thinking over the years. And so this conversation is focused on uncertainty, contingency, and ambiguity. Big words. Big words. Big words. Uh, thanks, Joy, for, for inviting me to think with you about these things. And this one kind of goes to the core. I'm, I'm celebrating my 60th year of being a minister. And I was thinking about a professor that I had in seminary who was from Sweden. And just about anything that came up in studies that we were engaged in, he would say, well, boys, it could be this way. And then again, it could be that way. It really doesn't make any difference. Both are true. Both are true. 
Now, if you didn't get the Swedish dialect, both are true. Now, those three words, both are true, are probably the most important words in shaping my life that I can think of, although I don't think I've ever mastered it, because they really introduce us to paradox, and paradox is to ambiguity, things that are not absolutely this way or that way. And I, I think the, the part of the reason why this is such an important topic right now is that I think we're in a time where people are willing to sell their soul for certainty. That may be religious, that may be political, that may be financial, that may be all kinds of ways in which that happens. The solution is complicated, but the solution, in my judgment, is about learning how to practice living with things being more than one. There's a very influential person who has a regular thing on, on email. His name is Richard Rohr. And lots of people who are focused on spirituality are looking for oneness. Well, I'm all for two-ness and threeness and fourness, but we don't get to threeness and fourness unless we first do two-ness. Right, right. And begin to see that there's this and there's that. I don't do this well. You know, you've watched me for a very long time, so you know I don't do this perfectly. But it is so important to keep practicing. Part of the reason I come to this around the, the word contingency is that I've written about, as you know, I've written and about and taught about death and grief. And when people are facing death, they often will ascribe terrible things to God, the God they believe in that God did this, God caused this to happen, because they really have a hard time acknowledging that shit happens. Life is contingent. There are no absolutes. And we're always living in a, in a kind of uncertain future. We can plan for that, but we can't plan for all uncertainties. You remember Frida Gardner, our beloved friend, your beloved friend, who had this wonderful phrase, anticipatory coping. Well, I think she would I think she was practicing living with ambiguity in, right, in, right. A, in a wonderful kind of way. Um, and it's about diversity. It's about a difference of any kind and difference of thought, differences of ideas, differences of belief systems. And we can say yes and yes, but it's the absolutizing tendency or the longing for certainty that terrifies me. And that, that as we were, we were talking about this last night, I went and found a, a quotation from a theologian named Paul Tillich, who has written writing about the rise of the Third Reich. And he says this, our inclination is to flee from the freedom to ask or doubt and create a situation in which no further questions can be asked and the answers to previous questions are imposed on one authoritatively in order to risk the risk of asking and doubting the right to ask and to doubt are surrendered. Meaning is saved, but the self is sacrificed. How many people are fearful of uncertainty that lead them to absolutizing in their belief systems, in their financial practices, in their political persuasions. And that's, it seems to me, what's at stake, that we're in a time where, and it's not just this country, it's, it's Italy, it's Sweden, you know, skinheads, Nazi skinheads are now part of the government of Sweden. Who would have thought? 
because so many people are fearful. So it, and it is about fear, and it's about real fear. But you can't fix real fear. And it's and it's fear of uncertainty of the future. Right? That's I think exactly that, that I mean, there's right. many exactly things right. that are causing the rise of yeah, of right, of, right. of that that that's sort yeah, of, right. But it's a it's a fear of the future. The fear of the future, a fear of the uncertainty in the future. And Absolutely. that is why not wanting to think about contingency, not wanting to engage in sort of a practice of recognizing ambiguity, because we must find a certain future. We must know that that exists and we will lose ourselves oh, to I, find that. Absolutely willing. Absolutely willing. You said it well. I'm done. That's it. <laughs> Great. To learn more about our work, visit us at criterioninstitute.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your reviews help our podcast reach a wider audience. Thanks for listening.